Hi, and welcome to the Circle of Film Podcast. I'm Ryan, and join me as we step into the April Scavenger Hunt preview on today's episode. What's this? What's this? It's supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. What is this? A whole new world. What is this? You'll have to bear with me just a little bit uh, in today's episode. I can't, you know, without the use of my right hand, it's a little bit more difficult to 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 access the information that I'm talking about. But I'm going to try to do the best I can, and I, I think it won't be too terribly um, debilitating for you, the listener. So, yeah. Uh, this month, April 2017, this is the 25th scavenger hunt on Letterboxd, so we're entering the third year. Uh, this month's scavenger hunt is created by Jace Fryman, uh, a pro member on Letterboxd. Uh, and I'll just kind of read his little blurb here. Having been participating in scavenger hunts since Wooderson, another user, took over when Naughty, another user, stopped making them, previously hosting and just being totally in love with the scavenger hunts we do here. Here's my scavenger hunt for this April. Uh, so pretty t- nice and tidy. Uh, there are 30 tasks and uh, let's uh, jump into them, shall we? Great. Task number one, a post-digital movie shot on film. Uh, so this can apply to like a ton of different movies to be fair. And I really didn't have any real um, criteria for what I was looking for. I ended up Googling the the task essentially four or five times, I think. And the film that I eventually uh, settled on is one that I've had in my watch list since I learned about it. And it's intrigued me. I've heard some praise for it from quite a few people. And that is last year's film directed by Anna Biller, The Love Witch. Uh, Elaine, a beautiful young witch, is determined to find a man to love her. In her gothic Victorian apartment, she makes spells and potions and then picks up men and seduces them. However, her spells work too well and she ends up with a string of hapless victims. When she finally meets the man of her dreams, her desperation to be loved will drive her to the brink of insanity and murder. Starring no nobody that I recognize uh, from their name, The Love Witch has a gorgeous poster uh, on Letterboxd and is quite highly rated. It's got a 3.5 on Letterboxd, which is pretty solid. And I think it's incredibly intriguing. I, I'm, you know, it's it's a horror film, uh, but it all it's also listed as a comedy, which is really weird to me. To like, I don't know. It doesn't seem like the plot lends itself to that genre. And I'm I'm just really interested in it. Uh, so, like the task said, it's a movie shot on film. It's not digital. So, you know, it has a little bit crisper, a little more real feel to it, which I think will lend itself very well to this gothic Victorian sort of setting and and plot. Uh, 
uh, as well as, you know, what, whatever special effects might need to be used in the film uh, to make this woman actually seem like a witch. And yeah, I, I've heard enough good things about it that I was really excited to see it. And I think that it'll, uh, I think it'll do pretty solid. Also, and this is not something that has happened on a previous scavenger hunt. Uh, so listener, hold on, let me find the email. Damn, it's buried in here. All right. So listener Moran, I hope I'm saying that correctly. Listener Moran, uh, who is also participating in the April scavenger hunt, uh, without the reviews, but you know, still participating in it. He emails me and said, uh, he's seen 19 of the 30 movies that I picked. And what he did was he went through each one, uh, let me know what he gave it out of five stars on Letterboxd and then predicted what he thought I would give the movie out of five stars on Letterboxd. And, uh, so and and once or twice he he sort of clarifies it a little bit. So uh, so I'm gonna go through and for each movie I will let you know what he predicted it would be, and then we'll return to this this month at the end and just see uh, see if he's any good at this. See see how just how well he knows my musical or musical my my film tastes, as it were. So, The Love Witch, he's predicting a two and a half. So that's somewhere in the 50s, so an average movie. Uh, and it's t- it's tough to say. I, I could definitely see this movie going a lot higher than that, but I think there's a really good chance that I'll like the methodology and aesthetic of the movie and find the bulk of it to be less than... Uh, less than great, I guess. You know, like, I, I feel like there's definitely a chance that things don't really hold up to how the film looks. Because based on the poster and based on the, the cover image on Letterboxd, it looks gorgeous. Uh, so we'll see if the rest of the film can hold up to it. That's The Love Witch, number one. Number two... A movie shot, at least mostly, on handheld camera. Uh, this was another tricky one to find, a, 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 like a huge list for. And I think I, what I ultimately ended up doing were, was finding directors that did this, uh, particularly in you know many many years ago. And I picked out a movie that was released in 1959, directed by John Cassavetes. And that is Shadows. Shadows is an improvisation-inspired film about interracial relations during the Beat Generation years in New York City and was written and directed by John Cassavetes. The film stars Ben Carruthers, Lil- uh, Lelia Goldoni, Hugh Hurd, and Anthony Ray. Many film scholars consider Shadows one of the highlights of independent film in the U.S. In 1960, the film won the Critics' Award at the Venice Film Festival. Not so much a synopsis as a list of accomplishments, but be that as it may. 
This has a 3.7 on Letterboxd, so a little higher than The Love Witch. And it's not a film that was anywhere on my radar prior to finding it to satisfy this task. I don't know anything about it. Uh, you know, it mentions that it's a sort of interracial relations film. I've seen many of those. I would, you know, I guess for this film, it kind of just depends on does the handheld style and the, you know, it looks to be black and white. Is there enough unique, are there enough unique aspects to this to separate it from and elevate it, uh, in comparison to many of the other films that I've seen, you know, when you're looking at films like I'm not your Negro, uh, do the right thing, uh, trying and, you know, films that, uh, 13th, you know, these films that have come out either recently or that I only got around to seeing recently, there's, you know, there's a lot of pedigree there. And, uh, it'll be interesting to see if Cassavetes can really shine a new light on something like that. Uh, so Shadows, uh, Moran did see Shadows, hadn't seen The Love Witch. Uh, he gave it a four and a half out of five stars. That's incredibly high. But he thinks that I'm going to give it a two out of five stars. So he doesn't have any faith in this movie as far as I'm concerned, uh, and as far as its impact on me, which is interesting. And, you know, I, I don't blatantly know why it's just you know it's a black and white drama from the 50s um pretty sure i've seen other no this will be my first cassavetes film and so i really don't know what i'm in for (laughs) what i'm like what i'm walking into so I, i really can't say that he's wrong until i watch it that's shadows number two Number three, a film you only know about because of Letterboxd. So what I did for this is I went down the list of all my my watch list films and I eliminated the films that were uh, films that were not released yet, as well as ones that I added because uh, when I started when I joined Letterboxd. And so that left a pretty good number of films. And I ended up picking one that I... I'm trying to think of how I came across it. I think... It's part of two lists that I think I've I've liked both of these lists. Or at least uh, perused them quite a lot. The first list is LGBT films with happy endings. And the second is movies that make you incapable of performing basic human tasks like breathing correctly after watching them because of how distraught they make you. So, which is kind of contradiction because, so this movie is supposed to have a happy ending, but devastate you emotionally. And that sounds great. This is a 2016 film directed by Karim Sanga, uh, which is a guy. (laughs) I didn't know. And it's called First Girl I Loved. It does not star anybody that I recognize. It is in English and Spanish. And, uh, oh wait, maybe I do know this name. Let me see. Tim Heidecker. Uh, 
so he's half of the Tim and Eric comedy team, but I don't really know who he is. Anyway, synopsis. Uh, 17-year-old Anne, played by Dylan Galula, just fell in love with Sasha, uh, Bri- Brianna Hildebrand, the most popular girl at her L.A. public high school. But when Anne tells her best friend Clifton, who has always harbored a secret crush on her, he does his best to get in the way. Um, yeah, so it kind of feels like a love triangle with a slight twist of instead of it being two boys and a girl, it's two girls. Instead of a girl being the object of affection for two guys, it's a girl being the object of affection uh, for a girl and a guy. Uh, sort of. In, in, in broad strokes, anyway. And, uh, yeah. So, I mean, I was drawn to this. I added this film to my watch list probably because of the LGBT list that it was a part of, as I don't, as I, like so many others, feel like there just aren't enough LGBT films out there, uh, and especially those that respect these alternative alternatives to heteronormative films. And I'm hoping that this will be a respectful film and that I will enjoy it. Uh, this is a film that Moran has never heard of, as he told me, and he thinks that I will give it a 3 out of 5. So this is currently the highest rated film that he thinks I will have seen through the first three movies. 3, so that puts it in the 60s. Uh, yeah, so that would mean that I liked it, but I didn't fall in love with it, or I appreciated it, uh, but I don't think that it's a very high quality film. And... I do think that there's definitely, you know, definitely possible that it falls into that range. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say I think that it's either going to go above that or or not be able to reach that. I I think 50s and 60s, like a a two and a half or a three star for this, I I really don't see it based on what I'm what the information I'm working with. I think it's either going to disappoint me a lot more or uh, impress me a lot more. So that's First Girl I Loved, number three. Number four, a movie produced by a film company that no longer exists. Uh, you know, I, I googled, you know, a list of film companies that are out of business. I found a few lists. Nothing was, like, super helpful. Uh, you know, a lot of them don't have, like, recognizable films stars directors or anything like that but i did find a film that i'm really pleased with to have picked this film comes from the studio gainsborough pictures which uh i've i don't think i've seen any of their films before but this is their most popular film on letterboxd that they've put out This is a film from the UK. It is from 1938 and directed by Alfred Hitchcock. And that is The Lady Vanishes. The Lady Vanishes, starring Margaret Lockwood, Michael Redgrave, uh, among others. Yeah, so it's a Hitchcock film. And, you know, it's a thriller. 
and mystery. And the synopsis is Hitchcock classic based on Ethelina White's novel The Wheel Spins. Travelers on a trans-European train are delayed for a night due to bad weather in a small fictional country called Mandrika. The passengers cram into the small village hotel where socialite Iris Henderson, played by... Wait, Iris... Yeah, Iris Henderson, played by Margaret Lockwood, meets an old governess called Miss Froy. Played by Dame May Whitty. Shortly after the journey restarts, Miss Froy disappears. Um, okay. So, I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't sound terribly dramatic uh, on the surface. I'm sure that under... Hitchcock's practiced hand, it will be much more uh, suspenseful than it appears to be. And it's got a 3.9 on Letterboxd, which is quite high, quite good. So I'm excited for it. I, I really do need to kind of, you know, I've seen most of Alf of Hitchcock's, you know, big titles you know, your rear windows, your vertigos, your psychos, but I, I haven't delved deep enough into the uh, sort of tertiary list of films that he his name's attached to, and this will kind of help me in that direction. Looking forward to it. Uh, so Moran, uh, he rated, rates this film a four and a half out of five, also, so very, very highly. And predicts that I will give it a three and a half out of five. So the new highest rating that he's predicting, somewhere in the 70s. And I'd say that that sounds kind of good. That sounds about right to me uh, at first glance. I, you know, Hitchcock for me is a very, very competent, very high quality filmmaker, but there are a lot of movies that he's made that, while as good as I think that they are, they never just reach into greatness. Um, let me see if I can let me pull up his page here. Second hitch. Um, <clears throat> you know, so I'm thinking of films like Notorious, Shadow of a Doubt, To Catch a Thief, and The 39 Steps. I... Uh, as well as Strangers on a Train, I guess I would uh, push into that category as well. These are all films that I liked to various varying degree, but really failed to become great films that I would put in the same categories as North by Northwest, Rebecca, uh, The Birds, Dial M for Murder, Rear Window, and, and the like. So... I don't get the vibe from The Lady Vanishes that it will be part of that upper echelon. And so I think a three and a half is, is a safe bet for this movie. That's The Lady Vanishes, number three, four, number four. Number five, an animated movie that does not use computer animation or cell animation. Uh, this task does not need to be feature length, uh, according to Jace's task description. However, the one I chose is, and, in, you know, it's interesting, it's a film that I added to my watch list about less than a week before I made my list for April, 
It is a 1973 film. Um, it is a sci-fi film, sci-fi fantasy film, directed by Rene Laloux, who, it, who besides this film also directed Time Masters, Gandahar. I don't know if those names mean anything to you. They don't to me because I haven't seen those either. But it has a 3.9 on Letterboxd, and that is Fantastic Planet. Uh, this Fantastic Planet is synopsized as... It tells the story of Ohms, human-like creatures kept as domestic pets by an alien race of blue giants called Drogs. The story takes place on the Drogs planet Ugam, where we follow our narrator, an Om called Tur, from infancy to adulthood. He manages to escape enslavement from a drog learning device used to educate the savage arms and begins to organize an arm revolt. A lot of things in there that you that aren't that like aren't words and are very created for this movie. Or I don't know, maybe it's based on a book. I'm not sure. Um, but it's a, described as a sublime trip to a fine new world. And uh, I'm curious. I'm really curious. It's very highly rated on here. Uh, it is in French and maybe a little English. Uh, French is the predominant language of the film. And it's a movie from the 70s. So, you know, the animation isn't going to be fantastic. I believe it's hand-drawn. But, you know, sci-fi films are films that I'm, I'm always into and, and can kind of connect with on some level. And there are a lot of pretty good reviews from people I respect on Letterboxd. Um, one here says, this is cooler than every Disney movie I've ever seen. That's, that's a pretty stellar review, if I must say. Artwork was just outstanding and a story as old as time. So, yeah, I I mean, I think that the biggest hurdle is just going to be sort of following the, the techno babble of this film's world. And, you know, if if it's done well enough, it shouldn't be that difficult. Uh, Fantastic Planet, Moran rated it a three and a half on his for himself, but thinks that I'm going to give it a three out of five. Uh, so a little lower than The Lady Vanishes. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, this is another tough call for me, you know, as an animated film that isn't a part of any, like, recognizable studio and that's in a foreign language. It, it can really go any direction, honestly. It, there are the, you know, the, the, the expanse in that category is so wide and vast that sure three, three out of three to five could more, you know, just as likely could be one out of five for me, uh, looking at it or four out of five or whatever. So, you know, I think, I think a lot of it's going to hinge on the story and the story seems pretty decent. You know, it seems complex enough and sophisticated enough that it'll hold my interest but you know we we will see when we get there it's only 72 minutes long so 
it might be a bit rushed. I don't know. We'll see. So that's Fantastic Planet, number five. Number six. Uh, a movie that has major input from an author. And he clarifies this by saying, uh, basically, it's the author has an, has an involvement in the film as more than just having written the work that the film's screenplay is based on. Whether that means that the author acted in the film or directed the film or wrote the actual screenplay for the film separate from the novel itself, uh, they're involved in, in more than that, more ways than just novel by so-and-so. So this is, you know, this is a very open-ended uh, category. I, you know, I went with a film that, um, was written. Let me see. Good IMDb here. Find the writing credits. Hmm. Now this is telling me something different than what I thought it was. Because this doesn't necessarily seem to be satisfying the task when I'm looking at it. Um... Uh... So the movie I'm looking at here is the 1944 film directed by Howard Hawks, uh, To Have and Have Not. Uh, to Have and Have Not is based on the novel originally written by Ernest Hemingway. To Have and Have Not. But according to IMDb, he didn't have any involvement in the screenplay. Yeah, the story was extensively altered for the film. So I don't know. Unless I have these out of order in some way. Hemming. Uh, oh, Hawks and Hemingway worked on the screenplay together. The film preserves the book's title and the names and characteristics of some of the characters, but nothing from beyond the first fifth of the volume. Noted author William Faulkner, an intense rival of Hemingway, but out of print and broke, also worked on the script. Um, so he did take part in, in working on the screenplay. That credit uh, was is just simply not listed on IMDb. Okay, so... As far as I'm concerned, it does satisfy the, the task. So that's To Have and Have Not, 1944, directed by Howard Hawks. A Martinique charter boat, Skipper, gets mixed up with the underground French resistance operatives during World War II. That's the synopsis. Starring Humphrey Bogart, Walter Brennan, Lauren Bacall, among others. Uh, this is yet another film rated on Letterboxd at a 3.9 out of five and uh you know this is another one that i've kind of wanted to see for a while i've seen and heard about it pretty regularly you know it's 
Bogart and Bacall, who I both I enjoy both of them very much. And I think that you know, I think for me, I don't spend enough time watching uh or I haven't seen enough Bogart or or Bacall for that matter. And it'll be nice to add another film to their list. This is a fi- this is a film that's on the they shoot pictures, don't they? A thousand greatest films list. And uh, at least at one point was part of the 1001 movies you must see before you die list. So, you know, I'm looking forward to it. I think it, I think I'll like it. Moran, however, uh, he rated this a three and a half for himself, thinks that I'm going to give it a two and a half, which is interesting. I'm, you know, I'd be interested to know like what his like where this particular rating is being based off of, and because I I get I have the feeling that I'm going to give it more than a two and a half, um, but I, I I could be way off base there. Let me see, Howard Hawks. I think it it's probably gonna have a lot more to do with the director and. Uh, Man, maybe that's the reason. So looking at Howard Hawks, this I've seen three films from him already. I've seen Bringing Up Baby, His Girl Friday, and Monkey Business, all starring Cary Grant. And I liked His Girl Friday and Bringing Up Baby, but I'd never, but none of them are like incredible. Uh. Bring Up Baby and His Girl Friday are pretty good to great, and I think Monkey Business is is okay at best. So um, okay, I kind of get from the Howard Hawks influence. I kind of see the two and a half. I still think it's going to be a little higher than that, but yeah, I, I yeah, I still think it's going to be a little higher. So that's To Have and Have Not, number six. Number seven, the film you will be happiest to get off your watch list. So I went to my watch list and I scrolled through a lot of the films and I found a film that I looked at it and I was like, I'm not super excited to watch this. And it's a film... Uh, and it's it's a 1988 film directed by Philip Kaufman, starring Daniel Day-Lewis, Juliette Binoche, Lena Olin, Stellan Skarsgård, among others. And that's The Unbearable Lightness of Being. Tomas is a doctor and a lady killer in 1960s Czechoslovakia, an apolitical man who is struck with love for the bookish country girl Teresa. His more sophisticated sometime lover, Sabina, eventually accepts the relationship and the two women form an electric friendship. The three are caught up in the events of the Prague Spring, 1968, until the Soviet tanks crush the nonviolent rebels, their illusions are shattered, and their lives change forever. Now, I'm not super excited to see this, but I do think that it's probably going to be pretty good. Daniel Day-Lewis is an incredible actor. I like Juliette Binoche and Lena Olin quite a lot. 
and uh, you know Philip Kaufman. I've seen, you know, I've I've li- I've liked most of the two of the three films of his that I've seen. So I liked Quills quite a bit, and I thought that Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the nineteen seventy eight version, was pretty good. Uh, Twisted, I didn't really care for, but I I do. I don't know. The Unbearable Lightness being, it has a 3.5 on Letterboxd, which is pretty good. And it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a Criterion film. It was nominated for Oscars. And so it could really go either way. I, I don't, I don't know. So Moran has not seen this film. Uh, but predicted, I would give it a three out of five. I think that's a pretty safe guess. I think, I think it'll probably be lower. I can't really explain it. I think the acting is going to be really good, but I think that the film is going to leave me wanting a lot more. It's also three hours long. It's really long, so. That's another part of why I want to get it off my watch list. But, yeah, three hours. That's a lot of time. That's the unbearable lightness of being, number seven. Number eight, a Jedi Geki movie. So this is, I looked it up, but I will look it up again just to make sure that I accurately describe what this is. Uh, Jedi Geki. I'm saying that correctly, is a genre of film, television, video game, and theater in Japan, literally meaning period dramas. Uh, They are mostly set during the Edo period of Japanese history, which is roughly between 1603 and 1868. So that's a pretty wide swath of years, 265 years. And uh, I immediately went to Kurosawa for this, uh, as I feel like I need to watch more Kurosawa. And I settled for Yojimbo. Yojimbo is a 1961 film starring Toshiro Mufune, Tatsuya Nakadai, and Yoko Tsukasa, among others. The incomparable Toshiro Mufune stars in Akira Kurosawa's visually stunning and darkly comic Yojimbo. To rid a terror-stricken village of corruption, wily, masterless samurai Sanjiro turns a range war between two evil clans to his own advantage. Remade twice by Sergio Leone and Walter Hill, this exhilarating genre twister remains one of the most influential and entertaining films of all time. That's pretty crazy. Uh, so this is remade uh, by, um, by Sergio Leone as... I believe, A Fistful of Dollars. And, you know, I I liked A Fistful of Dollars. It wasn't my favorite film by any stretch and is my least favorite of the trilogy, the Dollars trilogy that Leon directed. But... I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. I, you know, Kurosawa is very hit and miss with me. You know, I watched Dreams last month, or this month rather, 
And while that's definitely a very different uh, Kurosawa film than many of the others, you know, it's still a Kurosawa film. So I think it'll be good. You know, I love Mifune. I think he's fantastic. And yeah, I, I think I think it'll be very good. Um, I think that the mo- biggest distinction is going to be if it's good or if it's great or if it's incredible. So for Haran, this is a five out of five for him. So this is uh, as highly as he can rate it on Letterboxd. He's predicting a four out of five for me, which is pretty high. And I don't necessarily disagree. You know, I, I've enjoyed a lot of Kurosawa's films. I think he's a great director. He's made a lot of incredible films. And as with a 4.2 on Letterboxd, there's a very high chance that this is just another huge knock on his bed bedpost. It's a very strange way of phrasing it. So that's Yojimbo, number eight. Number nine, a movie that got its own pinball machine. Uh, so I googled like movies based on or pinball machines based on movies. Found one that I hadn't seen that starred people I knew in it, and this is a 1994 film directed by Russell Mulcahy. Mulcahy, and that's The Shadow, based on the 1930s comic strip. Puts the hero up against his arch enemy, Shiwan Khan, who plans to take over the world by holding a city to ransom using an atom bomb. Using his powers of invisibility and the power to cloud men's minds, the shadow comes blazing to the city's rescue with explosive results. Starring Alec Baldwin, Penelope Ann Miller, Peter Boyle, John Lone, Ian McKellen, Tim Curry, among others, uh, this is uh, it's a comic book movie from 1994, and it's got a 2.7 on Letterboxd, so it's probably pretty bad. <laughs> but you know, it's it's got a pretty pretty solid cast, all things considered. And I've seen and and Ru- so Russell McCauley, he directed Resident Evil Extinction. That's the 2007 Resident Evil film. And he also directed the Australian horror film Razorback, which I didn't like, but I respected it a little enough. Uh, He is also the director of Highlander. And I haven't seen that yet. But uh, so, you know, he's got a small amount of pedigree. And... So I went with the shadow. Uh, Moran saw the shadow, gave it a two out of five. So didn't really like it. And he's predicting a one and a half out of five for me. And I, yeah, I don't think I'm going to like this one. It might even be lower than one and a half, to be honest. I, you know, this is well before Alec Baldwin was, on 30 Rock, and, uh, yeah, I don't know, I just get it, I get the sense that it's going to be really cheesy and really bad, but maybe Tim Curry can save it, you know, he's, he's done better, better things than this, so, I like Tim Curry a lot, 
we'll see if he can lift this one up a little bit. So that's number nine, The Shadow. Number 10, a movie in a language with less than 10 million native speakers. I I think on, on Jace's list, uh, the film I went to the film he picked, I forget what it was, but it was in Swedish. So I didn't take the time to Google languages with less than 10 million speakers. I just went to uh, films that are in Swedish. And... The most popular film in Swedish that I have not seen is the one that I picked. And that is a 1957 film directed by Ingmar Bergman. And this will be filling in a huge gap and hole in my movie-watching career. And that's The Seventh Seal. Uh, Yeah. When disillusioned Swedish knight Antonius Bloch returns home from the Crusades to find his country in the grips of the Black Death, he challenges death to a chess match for his life. Tormented by the belief that God does not exist, Bloch sets off on a journey, meeting up with traveling players Joff and his wife Mia, and becoming determined to evade death long enough to commit one redemptive act while he still lives. Starring Max von Sydow and Gunnar Bjornstrand, and uh, B.B. Anderson is another name that I recognize. This is a seminal film that is referenced and talked about by pretty much everybody. I have not yet seen it. And it is a 4.3 on Letterboxd. So it's incredibly high. It is uh, ranked number 142nd on IMDb's top films of all time with an 8.2 and yeah you know this is a seminal work and i think that i will treat it in as such for moran this is a five out of five film and he's predicting a four out of five for me um yeah that's interesting i i do tend to rate these sort of like classic incredible films that are widely regarded a little lower than the average person. I would, I think for the most part, not always, but for the most part. And so it's tough to gauge whether or not this will be more like the Godfather, which I think is brilliant or more like seven samurai, which I think is just very good. And, you know, Ingmar Bergman, I, he keeps, you know, ever since Persona, I've had a lot of difficulty, you know, his films just have not affected me the way that they seem to affect a lot of other people. And so if this film, I don't know, I I don't think that, I don't think that this is really going to be anything like Persona per se. But it'll be interesting to see if this can kind of bring back the luster that I I felt for it, for Persona in The Seventh Seal. Number 10. Number 11. A movie featuring mistaken identity. And uh, it's a tough one to, to find examples of i think i there was a list that people made where like 
it basically just had people uh, like the same actor playing multiple roles. And many of those films are ones where that actor is confused to be one person when he's actually another. Uh, films like Dave, which I love Dave. I think Dave's great. Uh, so anyway, the film that I found is a 1979 film directed by Terry Jones called The Light, not called The, called Life of Brian. This is the Monty Python film. And it goes as follows. 2,000 years ago, three wise men enter a manger where a baby is wrapped in swaddling clothes. It is an infant named Brian, and the three wise men are in the wrong manger. For the rest of his life, Brian finds himself regarded as something of a messiah, yet he's always in the shadow of this other guy from Galilee. Brian is witness to the Sermon of of the Mount, but his seat is in such a bad location that he can't hear any of it. Ultimately, he is brought before Pontius Pilate and sentenced to crucifixion, which takes place at that crowded, non-exclusive execution site a few blocks shy of Calvary, Rather than utter the last six words, Brian leads his fellow crucifixes in a spirited rendition of a British music hall syrup song, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. I don't know, like, how spoilery that, like, synopsis was. It sounded like that's pretty much the whole movie. Regardless, um, this is, you know, a Monty Python movie, probably going to be really funny. It stars, you know, all the Monty Python people, Graham Chapman, John Cleese, Terry Gilliam, Eric Idle, Terry Jones, Michael Palin, uh, among others, and it's got a 4.0 on Letterboxd. I really like Holy Grail. I expect this to do to be worse than Holy Grail. Probably not by much, though. And... Um... You know, to that effect, holy, I believe Holy Grail is rated in the 80s. Yes, uh, I gave Holy Grail an 85. So I'm looking at somewhere about between 15, 5 to 15 points less than that, somewhere in the 70s. And that's exactly what Moran is predicting. He's predicting a 3.5 out of 5, which is the same as it is for him. You know, uh, Monty Python, <laughs> I've seen a lot of their skits. I think they're hilarious. I, thought, I saw Holy Grail. It's very, very, very funny. I'd listened to uh, the, the, the Broadway musical soundtrack that they were a part of, uh, whose name escapes me at the moment, and I was really unimpressed. So... I think that Life of Brian is going to be far more aligned with the things that I've loved about Monty Python, but I, I don't know. I, I don't know. There's a there's a small chance that it could get dragged down, and and I don't know if I like that. I want it to be good, you know. So that's number eleven, Life of Brian. Number twelve, a movie from the genre you watch the least. I looked on my spreadsheet. Here we go, here we go, here we go. And I can look and see how many of each genre film I've seen. And it was very close with um, sport films. I've seen 81 of those. 
and westerns are at 68. So I went with a western, and I went for a western that is on uh, one of the top 200s for the Cinerealists. I believe this is a top 200 film for James, and that is The Proposition. Proposition is a 2005 film directed by John Hillcoat. Uh, it has a 3.8 on Letterboxd, and it is described as, Set in the Australian outback in the 1880s, the movie follows the series of events following the horrific rape and murder of the Hopkins family, allegedly committed by the infamous Burns Brothers gang. Captain Morris Stanley captures Charlie Burns and gives him nine days to kill his older, dangerous, psychopathic brother, or else they'll hang his younger, mentally slow brother on Christmas Day. That sounds fucking great. I love the idea of this plot. Starring Guy Pierce, Ray Winstone, Emily Watson, Danny Huston, David Wenham, John Hurt, Noah Taylor, among others. Uh, which So that's a great cast. I love all the people involved in this movie. I think the plot sounds amazing. And... It's a Western, which I'm very underexperienced in. John Hillcoat, the director, is also the director of The Road, which is a film I quite enjoyed, as well as Lawless, which is a film I wished was a lot better, but I still liked it for the most part. So I, I'm pretty excited for this one. I, I think this could be pretty good, uh, as, as it turns out. I have high hopes. And uh, so does Moran, who gave it a four and a half for himself and thinks I'll give it a four. Uh, yeah, I think it'll be really enjoyable. I think I'll have a great time watching it and I'm excited to see it. So that's the proposition. Number 12. Number 13, a Western not set in the American Old West. So the proposition would have fit for this one as well. I toyed with like switching it around and just picking a different Western film. But um, it doesn't really matter because I went with a 2008 film that takes place in um, Korea. And that is Kim Ji-Woon's The Good, The Bad, The Weird. The story of three Korean outlaws in 1930s Manchuria and their dealings with the Japanese army and Chinese and Russian bandits, the good, a bounty hunter, the bad, a hitman, and the weird, a thief, battle the army and the bandits in a race to use a treasure map to uncover the riches of a legend. This is... I don't know. This is a film that I've wanted to watch for a while. I... First, I needed to see The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, which I've seen now. And then it was just a matter of time before I'd put pop this one in. It has a 3.7 on Letterboxd. It's Korean, which is a... Uh, and I, I really enjoy Korean films. And it stars Song Kang-ho, The Weird, uh, Byung-hun Lee, The Bad, and Woo Sung-jung. The Good. Uh, Byung-hun Lee is a name I'm very familiar with, and I, I like him a lot. He's in 
he was in the Magnificent Seven remake. He was in, but, and he's in some other bad movies as well. But, but most importantly, he's in I Saw the Devil from 2010, which I loved and I loved him in it. So I am excited for the good, the bad, the weird. Moran uh, gave this a four and a four out of five. And is predicting that I give it a 3 out of 5. So, mm, I hope it's more than that. I hope it's more than that. We'll see, but I I hope it's more than 3. So that's The Good, The Bad, The Weird, number 13. Number 14, a movie directed by a person who shares your initials. Uh, So my initials are RB. Um... And I just went through my spreadsheet and found RB names. There aren't a ton, but one of the ones that I found is the director of, pull it up here, the director of Kramer vs. Kramer and Nobody's Fool, and that's Robert Benton. And so there's quite a few films that he's directed that I haven't seen that I could have used. Places in the Heart, The Human Stain, uh, Twilight, the not the vampire film, but the 1998 movie. But I went with a different film, and I went with The Late Show. Um, Over the Hill Gumshoe in Los Angeles seeks to avenge the killing of an old pal. Another detective who had gotten himself involved in a case concerning a murdered broad, stolen stamps, a nickel-plated handgun, a cheating dolly, and a kidnapped pussycat. Sounds like a comedy of errors in some respects, starring Art Carney, Lily Tomlin, and Bill Macy, among others. This is, uh... I don't know. I I feel like it'll be a very quirky film that I'll enjoy, but it probably on a more superficial level than anything else. It is a 3.5 on Letterboxd. And uh, Moran has not seen it, doesn't know anything about it, predicts 2.5. I think that's pretty fair. You know, maybe a 3, maybe a 2. I think he's in the right ballpark. So that's The Late Show, number 14. Number 15, a film starring two or more classic horror stars. For example, Vincent Price, Boris Karloff, Basil Rathbone, Bella Lugosi, etc. And uh, this is a film um, starring Vincent Price, John Kerr, Barbara Steele, Luana Anders, Anthony Carbone, Patrick Westwood, Lynette Bernay, Mary Menzies, and Charlie Charles Victor. I don't know that there's two people in this one. Then how did I find this one? Two more horror. Oh, classic horror stars. I guess it doesn't have to be the bad people, does it? Um. Because I think that I'm. I think so. Vincent Price is clearly the first person. And I think the second person is supposed to be Barbara Steele. Yep. She's best known for starring in Italian gothic horror films of the 1960s. 
So, that is the 1961 film directed by Roger Corman, The Pit and the Pendulum. Roger Corman, uh, the director of The Little Shop of Horrors, and uh, the the original, or, what, yeah, the original of those. The Pit and the Pendulum is, uh, is an Edgar Allan Poe story, and Poe is a great writer. I, to be fair, honest, I, I don't really uh, familiarize myself with much of his work, actually, and so... I'm pretty sure I read The Pit and the Pendulum at some point, but I really could not tell you what it's about. Francis Bernard goes to Spain when he hears his sister Elizabeth has died. Her husband, Nicholas Medina, the son of the most brutal torturer of the Spanish Inquisition, tells him she has died of a blood disease, but Francis finds this hard to believe. After some investigating, he finds out that it was extreme fear that was fatal to his sister and that she may have been buried alive. Sounds daring, sounds terrifying, sounds very suspenseful and scary. It's got a three and a half on Letterboxd. It's pretty solid. I'm, I don't know, I'm not like super excited to see it, but I think it'll be okay. Uh, Moran tells me that he hasn't seen this, but he's generally not a fan of Roger Corman's Edgar Allan Poe films, and so he's predicting a 2 out of 5. So slightly less than okay. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with what I was saying. I'm going to stick with just okay. I think it'll be at least okay, actually. Um, but we'll, we'll see, we'll see. So that's number 15, The Pit and the Pendulum. Number 16, a talkie featuring a silent film star. And, uh, I believe in this case, the silent film, no, the silent film star in question is Lillian Gish. Uh, Lillian Gish, uh, is a, (laughs) is a screen actor who, whose career spanned from 1912 to 1987. She was prominently in films from the 1910s and 1920s. Uh, particularly associated with the films of director D.W. Griffith, and uh, <laughs> which includes the leading role in Griffith's seminal Birth of a Nation, which you might recognize as the same title as Nate Parker's drama, war drama from last year. Uh, but then once sound entered the picture, she her appearances became a bit more sporadic. This film in question does not, she's not the lead character by any stretch, but she is on the poster. That's her name. This is the 1955 film directed by Vincente Minnelli, The Cobweb. Uh, also starring Lauren Bacall, Charles Boyer, Gloria Graham, and Richard Widmark, whose names are also on the poster, uh, among others. This story tells the, this tells the story of... Uh, At an exclusive psychiatric clinic, the doctors and staff are about as crazy as the patients. The clinic head, Dr. Stuart McIver, thinks that it would be good therapy for his patients to design and make new drapes for the library. Mrs. Karen McIver, who is neglected by her hardworking husband and a bit unbalanced herself, wants to make her mark on the clinic, so she orders new drapes. Miss Inch, the business manager who has been with the clinic longer than anyone, sees this as an intrusion into her territory 
and she too orders drapes. All this puts everyone in a dither as they fight over drapes and clinic product politics. Um, so that's uh, <laughs> this is a really weird movie all about drapes, window drapes. Sure, I've seen plots with less substance, definitely. I don't know how this movie is two, over two hours long, but it is. I don't. I don't have any idea. This could go in any direction for me. And uh, Moran has not heard of this movie. I didn't. I hadn't heard of it before finding it. He's predicting a two and a half out of five. So nothing special either way. That's the cobweb number sixteen. Number seventeen. A movie starring Frank Welker. Frank Welker is a voice actor who you may not, or who you may have missed in films such as Big Hero 6, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Toy Story 3, The Lion King, Beauty and the Beast, Shrek, Aladdin, Mulan, Roger Rabbit, Transformers, any of them, Pocahontas, Hunchback of Notre Dame, Shrek, Forever After, The Road to El Dorado, Batman the Dark Knight Returns, Deep Blue Sea, Mirror Mirror, Anaconda, the goofy, a goofy movie, Rescuers Down Under, Species, Homeward Bound, Spawn, The Smurfs, Looney Tunes Back in Action, Balto, Smurfs 2, Mulan 2, Quest for Camelot, Cinderella 2, The Land Before Time, Time of the Great Giving, Alvin and Chipmunks Meet, <laughs> meet the Wolfman, or Frankenstein, and a whole host of other films. He has a ton of credits on here. Um, Letterbox gives him 185 current credits of films that are released. I've seen 38 of them. And I confess he is not on my spreadsheet. And that's very disappointing for me. So I'll have to add him. <laughs> Considering that there are a lot of really good movies on this list that he's been in. He'll probably start out pretty high, but I think there are enough Transformers and shitty movies to kind of counterbalance that. Uh, so anyway, the film that I chose that he's that I haven't seen yet is a 2006 film called The Ant Bully, directed by John A. Davis. Uh, fed up with being targeted by the neighborhood bully, 10-year-old Lucas Nickel vents his frustrations on the ant hill in his front yard until the insects shrink him to the size of a bug with a magic elixir. Convicted of, quote, crimes against the colony, unquote, Lucas can only regain his freedom by living with the ants and learning their ways. <laughs> Starring the voice talents of Julia Roberts, Meryl Streep, Nicolas Cage, Paul Giamatti, Bruce Campbell, Regina King, Lily Tomlin, Larry Miller, Sherry Odery, Frank Welker, Rob Paulson, among others. Uh, this is a film that has gotten piss poor reviews it is a 2.3 on letterboxd the most popular review of which none of them are very popular is simply says more like the audience bully one star don't expect anything from this at all uh this is from john a davis who only the only other notable film he directed is the jimmy neutron boy genius film from 2001 which, if I recall correctly, was nominated for Best uh, Animated Feature that year. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it's going to be pretty bad. 
And so does Moran, who hasn't seen it, can't imagine it being good, thinks I'm going to give it a 1 out of 5. That might be too generous. <laughs> so that's The Ant Bully, number 17. Number 18, a movie that started a television show. I was Googling stuff for this and then stopped because I realized I knew exactly what this movie had to be. That is a 1992 film directed by Fran Rubel Kuzui. Kuzui? Kuzui? And that's Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, I've watched some of the TV show. Uh, an ex of mine uh, was, was you know, watching it with me. Uh, I never got... I think I was in somewhere along season three when I, I stopped watching. Not that I wasn't interested. Uh, I did find... I did transition over to Angel, and I, I liked Angel a lot more than Buffy. But... Uh, I just, it, it wasn't, it didn't hold my attention enough to, uh, watch it, uh, any further. <laughs> uh, but this is basically, but this is the movie that spawned the TV show, and the movie isn't really considered canon. And my opinion, I'd always been the, of the opinion that because the show redid so much of the movie and, and elements therein, I just figured that the movie was probably pretty bad. And on Letterboxd, it does have a 2.7. Not great. But uh, one of my coworkers uh, told me that he thought it was pretty He thought it was great. So, and I, I do value, I think he's got a good opinion on film. I value them, value his opinion. And this is the first film uh, of which Moran is, is predicting a higher me giving the film a higher score than he did so he gave it a two and a two out of five uh with the caveat that it was a long long time ago that he saw it but predicts that i will give it a three out of five which is curious to say the least uh starring christy swanson donald sutherland paul rubens rutger hauer luke perry hillary swank thomas jane David Arquette, Ricky Lake, Ben Affleck, Stephen Root, among others. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I kind of agree. I feel like this could be a film that just kind of sneaks up on me and becomes something I really enjoy. I don't know. I, I think that I think it definitely could break that mold, as it were. So that's Buffy the Vampire, Vamp the Vampire Slayer, number eight. Number 19 is a movie you will only ever need to see once. I have, There were a few on my list that I think generally satisfy this task. I was looking for something very visceral, very bloody maybe, very kind of dark and very sad something that you know something kind of like 12 years a slave which is great but you know you see it once and it gives you everything you need it's a very disheartening and i mean ultimately uplifting but primarily disheartening film that is like difficult to watch and so that's kind of the idea of what you're looking at for this category and i was able to find a film <clears throat> That's on, uh, I believe, 
Zach's top 200 of the Cinerealists, and that is the 1979 film directed by Andrei Tarkovsky, Stalker. Near a gray and unnamed city is The Zone, an alien place guarded by barbed wire and soldiers, and where the normal laws of physics are victim to frequent anomalies. A stalker, one of only a handful who have, ha- who have the mental gifts and who risk imprisonment to lead people into the zone, is tasked with reaching the room, said to be a place where one's secret hopes come true. His clients are a burned-out popular writer, cynical and questioning his talent, and a quiet scientist more concerned about his knapsack than the journey. In the deserted zone, the approach to the room must be indirect. As they draw near, the rules seem to change and the stalker faces a crisis. The film is loosely based on the novel Roadside Picnic by Boris and Arkady Strugatsky. Uh, This is a very highly rated film on Letterboxd. as a 4.4, so one of the highest rated films uh, on the site completely and it is a film that i really don't know any like even after reading the synopsis i really don't have any idea what it's about and you know look scrolling through all of these reviews they're very very praising uh and so it, it kind of the vibe I get from this movie, you know, it's more over two and a half hours long, which is another reason not to rewatch something. But I sort of get a some somewhat of a uh, I don't even know. It's tough to explain. I, I just I think it's going to be something very heady and very tough to get into but if you do get into it it's something that's going to latch on very tightly so you know i think worst case scenario i respect the things that it's doing and best case scenario i fall in love with it and that is exactly kind of where uh marin puts uh his prediction so this is a five out of five for him and he's predicting that it can be anywhere from a two out of five to a four and a half out of five for me so pretty much the entire range of scale where something that is highly appreciated is going to end up that's number 19 stalker number 20 a hybrid genre film so At first, I kind of looked at this as, well, it's got to be two different genres that don't normally go together. And that's what I was thinking about. So something like this is a horror comedy or something like that. But actually, the I believe the intention of this category is more along the lines of dramedy or uh, action adventure, sort of like two genres that are that get paired together so frequently that they've become their own new genre so rom-com and uh, things like that so i went with uh, dramedy drama comedy and chose a 1989 film directed by woody allen called crimes and misdemeanors i have now i've currently seen oh i want to say 19 that's probably high. Uh, I've seen 21 films from Woody Allen at, at this point, um, which makes him the second most watched director on my spreadsheet. Uh, 
so this will be number 22. And this is, you know, reportedly one of the better films that he has made. It has a 4.0 rating on Letterboxd, which is very high. And uh, it stars Woody Allen, Martin Landau, Angelica Huston, Alan Alda, Sam Waterston, Mia Farrow, Daryl Hannah, among others. So pretty, pretty big cast. A lot of fam- a lot of familiar faces in Woody Allen movies. An ophthalmologist's mistress threatens to reveal their affair to his wife, while a married documentary filmmaker is infatuated by another woman. I don't know how those two stories are going to intersect, if they do at all, but, you know, Woody Allen, whatever you think about him as a person, is a good writer and filmmaker, on average, and so... I've had a lot of I've had a lot of fun watching most of his movies, and uh, I'm looking forward to this one as well. The prediction here is uh, this is a four and a half out of five for Marin, and a four out of five prediction he's calling. Uh, so somewhere in the 80s, uh, that's pretty high. I don't know if I would go quite so high on my prediction. I might go three and a half stars, which is where the, which is kind of like the top of the bell curve for most of Woody Allen's films, you know, putting it in the 80s uh, puts it alongside Love and Death, Sleeper, and Zelig, which I think are great, but in the 70s, it fits alongside films such as Mighty Aphrodite, Manhattan, Blue Jasmine, Husbands and Wives, Hannah and Her Sisters, as well as Broadway Danny Rose, and I'm sure that some people would flip-flop a lot of those or what have you, but for me, those are the ones that I think this is more likely to end up with, but uh, there's definitely an option to slide the scale up or down as as I watch it. So that's Crimes and Misdemeanors, number 20. Number 21, a film nominated for an Independent Spirit Award for Best Picture. I don't remember what criteria I used when I was picking this. Uh, I believe I simply... Oh, I remember. So I I was on the Wikipedia page, and I've seen a lot of these, not all of them, for sure. Uh, Especially, even even more recent years, there's still some gaps there. But I was also, on top of that, looking for films that, uh, you know, on the Wikipedia page, it lists the director of the film, and I was looking for directors that I was very familiar with and uh, ones that I was interested in diving deeper into their filmographies for. So that led me to the 1990 film directed by Stephen Frears. Uh, Stephen Frears, the director of Philomena, High Fidelity, uh, this past year's Florence Foster Jenkins, My Beautiful Laundrette, The Queen, um... And uh, this month's scavenger hunt film, The Grifters. A young, short con grifter suffers both injury and the displeasure of reuniting with his criminal mother, all the while dating an unpredictable young lady. So the grifter, in this case, played by John Cusack. Uh, I believe the based on the cast list and the photo, it appears that the uh, girlfriend is Annette Benning. And the mother is Angelica Huston. So a very strong trio of character of, of actors leading the way. This has a 3.4 on Letterboxd. So 
somewhat average, a little less than great, uh, but still a solid rank rating uh, based on, I don't know, history and, and other films on Letterboxd that I've watched. I like John Cusack. I I like Angelica Huston more in a supporting role. This seems to be much more of a lead. Uh, so I don't know how much that will impact my enjoyment of the film. I love Annette Benning, so the more she's in this, the better. Also, uh, I see Stephen Tobolowski in the list of the cast, who I think is fantastic. I love him. Uh, as well as Jeremy Piven, who's fine, and Paul Adelstein, who's made more of a TV actor at this point, but it'll be nice to see him as he's been in some of my favorite TV shows. The prediction for this one is a three and a half, which is the same as uh, Marin's rating. So we'll see. That I think that's a little high. I, I would probably predict a three if I had to. So that's number 21, The Grifters. Number 22, a film that won any award for production design. And I think this is the film the most recent film uh, that has been nominated for best, or actually it may have won. I think this is the most recent film that won uh, the, the production design Oscar um, uh, in 2000. And 2000 and it won in, well, the ceremony was in 2006, film released in 2005, uh, directed by Rob Marshall. This is Memoirs of a Geisha. A sweeping romantic epic set in Japan in the years before World War II. A penniless Japanese child is torn from her family to work as a maid in a geisha house. Starring Zhang Zi, Gong Li, Yoki Kudo, Tsai Chin, Suzuka Ogo, Ken Watanabe, Michelle Yeoh, and others, including Ted Levine, Paul Adelstein, again. Uh, but ever, and And... The majority of the names are, are uh, foreign. And uh, this is a two and a half hour movie. So there's quite a few long movies uh, in this month's scavenger hunt I'm beginning to notice. Uh, we'll see if that's to my own detriment or not. This also has a 3.4 average rating on Letterboxd. Uh, I remember uh, when this came out, actually, I think my grandparents enjoyed it. Uh, for the most part, but I, I don't really remember. I, I'm not sure. I'm trying to think. I don't. I don't think that it was very much. Um, I don't know. It didn't. It didn't really stay in the public sphere of of interest outside of the Oscar wins win that it had. Uh, as I'm scrolling through some of the comments and reviews, there's a little bit of a, mm, there's a little bit of a, like, controversy regarding this film, um, just to kind of put, uh, let's see. Uh, the story started off as memoirs, as the white male author Arthas Golden, that the book is based on, was writing this woman's life, but then changed huge sections and misrep misrepresented her life 
geisha culture, Japanese culture, and history, interjecting prostitution and that whole auctioning a geisha's virginity off to the highest bidder thing. After complaints were filed, he simply applied the word fiction to the account of Mineko Iwasaki's life and suggested that it actually pieced to that it's actually pieced together from the lives of several geishas. Um, hmm. So, a little bit of a controversy about the whitewashing of this film and the portrayal of Japanese culture. Uh, you know, again, I haven't seen it yet. I will, and I'll see if I... In, uh, interpret it the same way I'll be sure to uh, at least comment on that in my review on Letterboxd for this film if it doesn't come up during the review episode at the end of the month um, so uh, this is a film that has not been seen by Marin and his uh, prediction is a one and a half out of five I think that's kind of fair I don't think I'm going to like this movie it's somewhat long, and if it is as bastardized as it is being made out to be, it's probably a weaker story because of that. So, uh, we'll see. We'll see. Number 23. This is uh, a cinema verite film. And so, just to make sure I'm describing it right... Cinema Verite uh, is a French style of filmmaking uh, for documentaries uh, invented by Jean Roche, inspired by Ziga Vertov's theory about Kino Pravda and influenced by Robert Flaherty's films. Uh, it is sometimes called observational cinema. Uh, mainly, it's, it's, um, it combines improvisation with the use of the camera to unveil truth or highlight subjects hidden behind cruel, crude reality. So, essentially, if, I, if I'm understanding this correctly, what it means is, you know, a documentary film that has a lot of talking heads, that has um, recreations, or, uh, or or just kind of is is goes through the process of explaining to you the things that you're seeing, does not fit this quality and so an, a, one of my absolute favorite films that i've given a 100 to is microcosmos which if i'm understanding this direction uh this this definition correctly would completely be considered uh a um cinema verite film because that entire film is simply filmmakers filming uh insects in um, hypermicroscopic with hypermicroscopic cameras and without any interference without any narration without any um, outside affecting on on the events that are taking place so i went with a 1994 film directed by steve james called hoop dreams uh, this documentary follows two inner-city Chicago residents, Arthur Agee and William Gates, as they follow their dreams of becoming basketball superstars. Beginning at the start of their high school years and ending almost five years later, as they start college, we watch the boys mature into, into men, still retaining their hoop dreams. I uh, So this is almost three hours long. <laughs> um, 
It is widely considered one of the best documentaries. It has a 4.3 on Letterboxd, and um, I believe I, that it, it was when I like Googled Cinema Verite, this is one of the results that came up. So I didn't dive too deep into this to know, to confirm that it counts as this movie. Someone else considered it that, so uh, I, presumably that's all it is, that there won't be talking heads. It'll just be the sort of playing out of these two boys' lives in their dreams to play basketball professionally. Uh, I'm a big fan of basketball. It's not my favorite sport, but I, I do enjoy it. I love college basketball more than NBA basketball, and since this deals with high schoolers and then ends as they're starting college, you know, that's kind of right in my wheelhouse as far as appreciating the sport. And... Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's a movie that I've kind of been aware of for quite some time now and simply haven't taken the time to watch. So this month, I will definitely be taking that time. Uh, so this, as far as the predictions go, um, Miran is predicting, predicting a four and a half, four out of five for me. Uh, and this is a 5 out of 5 film for him. I know that this is on his top 200 of films. And I think it's very likely that I give it a 4, and, four out of 5, if not more. Um, so that I, this, I expect this one to show up in the superlatives and the top 10 list at the end of the month. And I'd be, I'd be shocked if it didn't. So that's Hoop Dreams, number 23. Number 24, a pre-Toy Story movie that uses computer animation in some way. Now, it's probably not going to be an animated film, uh, since Toy Story was pretty much the first feature-length film to use computer animation to the extent that it does. And so I looked elsewhere, and I remember someone bringing up this movie. I can't remember if it was on the Cinerealist. might have been... Uh, it might have been on the Slash Filmcast. I don't, I don't remember... But this is a 1991 film directed by Ron Howard called Backdraft. They say a blast of flames can take a life and hide a secret. But now Fireman brothers Brian and Stephen McCaffrey are battling each other over past slights while trying to stop an arsonist with a diabolic agenda from torching Chicago. Um, yeah, so... Uh, this stars Kurt Russell, William Baldwin, Robert De Niro, Donald Sutherland, Jennifer Jason Leigh, Scott Glenn, and among others, like Clint Howard, among others. This is a Ron Howard film. Ron Howard is very hit or miss with me. I think Rush is great. I think all of the Da Vinci Code movies are terrible. I was less impressed by A Beautiful Mind than most people were. I think Apollo 13 is fine. In the Heart of the Sea is okay. How the Grinch Stole Christmas is okay. Frost and Nixon is great. Cinderella Man is fine. Willow, I didn't like. Uh, I liked Parenthood somewhat. Uh, the Beatles, Eight Days a Week was good. The Dilemma is bad. ATV is bad. Uh, so I've seen a lot of films from Ron Howard. And I think... I think I'll like this one. I don't know if that makes it a good movie. 
so it has a 3.1 on Letterboxd, which is somewhat okay. And, you know, so the, so the computer graphic animation is the, the towering inferno of flames used in the movie. Uh, that's how they achieved that, uh, that effect. And, uh, so I'm very interested to see a 1991, you know, computer animated building on fire and, and see how well the effects hold up today. Um, uh, they might, I mean, Ron Howard is pretty solid as a filmmaker, just in general. I think that he tends to drift into sentimentality a lot. Uh, I think more so than Spielberg for example, but that's, uh, we'll see. So I think Backdraft will probably end up in the middle uh, of, of my ratings. And uh, this is a two and a half out of five for Moran, and he's predicting a three out of five for me. So just a touch higher than where I'm expecting it to land. So not too far off, but we can, and uh, we'll see. That's number 24, Backdraft. Number 25, a film featuring Arthur Tovey. So I had no idea who Arthur Tovey was. <laughs> um, and I still don't, other than his name. Uh, so, you know, looked him up on Letterboxd. He is uh, an older actor. Uh, he was born in 1904. And died October 20th, 2000. He has been in some pretty incredible films, uh, such as Back to the Future, North by Northwest, Rocky, Some Like It Hot, To Kill a Mockingbird, Young Frankenstein, The Killing, The Sting, The Nutty Professor, and Around the World in 80 Days. Uh, so those are the ones I've seen so far. Uh, so that's a pretty substantial number of films, quite a few Best Picture winners, on top of that, you know, between The Sting, Rocky, and Around the World in 80 Days, the the older film, not the newer one with Jackie Chan. And uh, so, and, and even despite all that, there were still quite a few films on his filmography that I haven't seen that are uh, highly desirable. Uh, according to Letterboxd, he's been in 30 films. I went with the 1957 film directed by Billy Wilder, Witness for the Prosecution, starring Tyrone Power, Marlene Dietrich, Charles Loughton, Elsa Lanchester, and John Williams, among others. This is synopsized as, when Leonard Vole is arrested for the sensation sensational murder of a rich middle-aged widow, the famous Sir Wilfred Robarts agrees to appear on his behalf. Sir Wilfred, recovering from a near-fatal heart attack, is supposed to be on a diet of bland civil suits, but the lure of the criminal courts is too much for him, especially when the case is so difficult. Vole's only al alibi witness is his wife, the calm and coldly calculating Christine Vole. Sir Wilfred's task becomes even more impossible when Christine agrees to be a witness, not for the defense, but for the prosecution. Uh, man, so... <laughs> there's so man it's so it's a courtroom drama predominantly which i quite enjoy and the sort of implication that your main 
your main character is probably going to be Sir Wilfred Robards, and then your main subject is Leonard Vole, accused of this murder, and when the only person who can corroborate your alibi is deciding to be a witness for the people trying to prove you did the thing you're saying you didn't do, it's probably not a good thing. And so I'm interested already to see how we get from that point or how, how we as the audience can sympathize with our with this character as well as believe that there's like a believe one believe that he didn't do it or two um, prove that he didn't do it and I'm, I'm very intrigued to know how that's going to be you know billy wilder is a great director one i i particularly love and consider one of the best directors uh, of all time at this point this is a film with a 4.1 average rating on letterboxd uh, and uh yeah I'm always in for Billy Wilder films. Uh, this is a three and a half for uh, Miran, and he's predicting a four out of five for me. And I say that's uh, pretty accurate. I would put it right around that spot too. So that's Witness for the Prosecution, number 25. Number 26, a film featuring Bess Flowers. Now, Bess Flowers is a name I'm pretty sure I've mentioned before. She is a uh, basically a background actor in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and is one of the most prolific actresses in the history of Hollywood. On Letterboxd, she has 445 credits, and her Wikipedia her bio mentions that she's been in over 700 films in her 41-year career. She started in, uh, acting in, in 1923 and appeared in only three films that year <laughs> as she is frequently uh, doesn't talk in her roles, very often uncredited, but she has... For some reason, everybody wanted her in their movies. She's appeared in five Best Picture winners. It Happened One Night, You Can't Take It With You, All About Eve, The Greatest Show on Earth, and Around the World in 80 Days. Uh, she's appeared in 23 Best Picture nominees in total, which is the record holder. And the last movie she made was Good Neighbor Sam in 1964. She was also seen in many television series, such as I Love Lucy, and uh, she helped found the Screen Actors Guild, which then became, or the Screen Extras Guild, I'm sorry, which then merged with SAG in 1992, and she was the one of the first vice presidents and recording secretaries for the new SAG. Uh, so, I have seen 23 films, according to Letterboxd, that she's been in. Uh, she's also in Witness for the Prosecution, and which would be the most, which is the most popular film of hers I haven't seen. So I went to the next one on this list, and that sends me to the 1953 film directed by Howard Hawks, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. 
Uh, Lorelai Lee is a beautiful showgirl engaged to be married to the wealthy Gus Esmond. Much to the disapproval of Gus's rich father, Esmond Sr., who thinks that Lorelai is just after his money. When Lorelai goes on a cruise accompanied by only by her best friend Dorothy Shaw, Esmond Sr. hires Ernie Malone, a private detective, to follow her and report any questionable behavior that would disqualify her from the marriage. Starring Jane Russell and Marilyn Monroe, as well as Charles Coburn, Elliot Reed, Tommy Noonan, George Winslow, and Marcel Dalio. And, of course, Best Flowers. Uh, this is um, maybe not a, a super respected film. I'm not sure. I've definitely heard of this film before. It has a 3.6 on, on, on Letterboxd, which is solid and fine. But I don't expect this to be a great movie. Um, as as I'm sure Jane Russell and Marilyn Monroe are more than competent in this movie, uh, but it doesn't seem like something. It seems like more of a, a product of its time than anything else. Uh, but I have been proven wrong in that instance before, many times before. And so this is a four out of five from Iran, which I'm kind of surprised. I, I didn't think it'd be so high. He's predicting a three out of five for me. So he kind of is, is assessing the sort of same way that I am assessing it. Uh, so not sure. I, I think the more respect paid to these women in this movie, the much higher likelihood that I will come away from it thinking that it's a good movie uh, but we will see so that's number 26 gentlemen prefer blondes numbers 27 and 28 any two films with the same title and uh, there's quite a few different films that you can use to satisfy these i went with bad boys so first up is Bad Boys from 1995, directed by Michael Bay, starring Will Smith, Martin Lawrence, Taya Leone, Joe Pan, Joe Joe Pantoliano, uh, among others. Uh, this is like I don't know, pretty typical buddy cop movie, except the both the cops are black, and uh, other than that, it's probably pretty straightforward. It is directed by Michael Bay, so I'm not particularly giving this any credit whatsoever uh, which might serve uh, do do well for it in the end as my expectations are very low will smith is incredibly charismatic and this is the mid 90s so it was kind of the height of his game i'm a big fan of tay leone but not so much martin lawrence uh, i don't think that i don't know i haven't seen a really good movie that's made good because of him and so I don't have high hopes, but I could be surprised considering my low expectations. This is a two and a half, two, two out of five for Moran, and he's predicting a two out of five for me. So he's kind of right in line. The other Bad Boys movie is a 1983 film directed by Rick Rosenthal, uh, who is the director of Halloween 2, Halloween Resurrection, and uh, some other bad b-movies apparently this is a film that stars sean penn and a lot of names i don't recognize 
and uh, it has a 3.5 on Letterboxd. Chicago crime kid Mick O'Brien has been sent to a juvenile prison for vehicular manslaughter. Most unfortunately, the person he kills is the kid brother of his nemesis, Paco Moreno, who vows revenge by raping Mick's girlfriend. Paco is caught and sent to the same prison where he reworks his revenge plan, and Mick has no choice but to defend himself. I, uh, man, I am... I don't... I'm very, very apprehensive about this. I feel like it's not going to be very good. I feel like I'm not going to like it. There's rape, it's just kind of revenge, and it's like... I don't know. I, I Let's see. So, so the Mick character is Sean Penn, and the Paco character is Asai Morales, who I've never seen in a movie before. Um, also starring Renny Santoni, who is... Uh, I mean, he's in Groundhog Day for something, and Rain Man. I don't know. I don't, I don't recognize him at all. Uh, Ali Sheedy. I recognize that name. Yeah, I, I have... I just get really like negative vibes about that movie. Uh, this is a film that Moran has not seen. He's predicting a two and a half out of five. I think that's very generous. Number 29, almost there, guys, almost done. I realize this has been a very long episode. A silent science fiction film. So something like Metropolis. Unfortunately, I've seen Metropolis. I think it's great. I went with the 1925 film directed by Harry O'Hoyt and Milton Minasco, which is The Lost World. This is an adventure, fantasy, drama, sci-fi film starring people I've never heard of because it's from before the, before you could talk on movies. <laughs> um, one of the things that swayed my opinion to, see, to pick this movie is uh, one of the popular reviews for it on Letterboxd simply <laughs> sorry simply says i've never seen so many brontosaurus reaction shots in my life and i don't know i love dinosaurs i think dinosaurs are great i'm really into them and i hope that this film does them justice obviously it's from 1925 so the effects are going to be pretty bad but it's uh, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's got a 3.3. Could be okay. Could be okay. Open mind. Open mind. Um, so, this is a film that Moran hasn't seen, and he's predicting a 2 out of 5. We'll see. We'll see. And finally, number 30. A film directed by a woman director of color. I went with uh, Ava DuVernay, who I think is a fantastic filmmaker, and went with uh, a film that I don't really know anything about, but this is the 2012 effort of hers called Middle of Nowhere, which follows a woman named Ruby who lost her husband to incarceration and lost herself in the process. And... Uh, the stars, uh, the only name I recognize in the cast list is David Oyelowo, who I think is a very good actor. 
He's first listed on Letterboxd, but he definitely doesn't play Ruby, so I don't know if he's the main character or not. But, uh, I don't know. I mean, I really like Ava DuVernay. I'm excited for her version of Wrinkle in Time. This is a 3.6 on Letterboxd, and uh, I think I think it'll be okay. I think it'll be solid. I don't know if it'll be great or very good, but I think it'll fall somewhere in the two to three star range uh, based on probably the performances most of all, I think, will be the biggest determining factor. And this is another film Ron hasn't seen, and he's predicting a three out of five. So, those are the 30 films for this month's scavenger hunt. Um, uh, Thank you for listening. It has been a very long preview episode, uh, with simply based on the fact that uh, I had to go into the predictions for each film, and for the most part, I read all the letterbox synopsis for each film, which I don't typically do. But, and and maybe that will be. Uh, undesirable going forward we'll see but uh any in any rate thank you so very much for listening i hope this was uh entertaining in some respect and if you have any comments concerns questions or answers you can send those to circle of film at gmail.com if you are interested in seeing last month's superlatives and how they stack up against the previous scavenger hunts i have done you can find those at circleoffilm.com along with other episodes of the podcast and much more information about me and the spreadsheet and other various things. Uh, and as always, have a week. So long, farewell, I'll be to say goodnight. I know she'll never leave me, even as she fades from Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. So long.